Okay. Shall I go? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Welcome to ACFM. I'm Nadia Idol, and I'm joined by Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Kia Milburn. Hello. And today we're talking about the weird left. Zips. Sounds good to me. Do one more, do one more. It could have been weirder. <laughs> do it weirder. <laughs> Hello. You're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navara Media. Unfortunately, because of the way copyright works with the internet, the version you're listening to only has the conversation and discussion from the show. The music and archive material is only available in the version you can stream online. So really, you're only getting half the picture or seeing through a glass darkly or on a really weak dose. Why not head over to the Navarra Media website or our SoundCloud where you can stream the whole thing in its glorious fullness. The link is also in the description of this podcast version too. But if you just want the chat, keep on listening. Okay, so so in the first episode, we um, we sort of spontaneously decided just before we started recording that <laughs> we'd call ACS, ACFM the home of the weird left. And that was a pretty unworked out uh, phrase. It sounded quite worked out, to be fair. But it was, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting discovery for me that we had just made it up, but great. No, but it sounded appropriate, didn't it? And, but yeah, we it hadn't did. really explored it, it, so the start might be, why did it seem appropriate for, for ACFM where we're discussing things such as acid corbinism? Why did it seem appropriate to, to, to tag ourselves as the weird left? Uh, and if I thought about that question, you know, I'd say part of what, what we've been interested in is is thinking about uh, politics in areas that are, which have become disassociated with left politics or, or, or are not exactly. not, the, not not associated with the norm of the norm of uh, of left politics such as thing, thinking about thinking about transformation in terms of like political transformation but also cultural transformation how they link together we've talked about acid communist moments before when we look back at history of these moments where there's big social transformation big cultural transformation seems to be linked to sort of cultural innovation. And those things are linked to like a project of political change. Any moment like that, right? If, if you're going to have cultural and social transformation, you're going to have moments which look subcultural, right? Moments where people are experimenting with different ways of living, right? Which are going to look weird <laughs> to people who are looking from the outside. Like a weird left needs to defend the space for people to experiment with different different kinds of of ways of living so that would be my opening gambit of what why i would think acid acid an acid corbinist project uh, acfm would seem in that think it natural to take on the, the phrase the weird left yeah i i would agree with that i think um there's something about the weird which speaks to like the political methodologies which accepts like human subjects as as complex and and what i mean by that is this idea that um the traditional left or the normie left which i think is something we're going to come on to um the way it's actualized is people f people seem to feel like they need to perform a certain to be a certain person to to be on the left and appear to be a certain person and and through that performity 
they are obscuring the complexity of what it is to be human and therefore keeping the political in a very specific realm um, and not allowing for that, you know, cultural expression or or different different ways that it is to to be and express culture um, and exist. And of course, that has a massive knock on effect onto the involvement and the juncture between um, art and politics. Um, so I think um, putting that term, the weird next to the left, like forces you to explore different imageries with your head as well. Um, but I do I do hugely agree with you, Kia, that for this is this should not be thought about in the sense of well this is about trying to create a subculture ourselves so i think i think we would agree that we're not saying hey we're the weird weird left we're we're cooler than you or better than you or like that we're going to remain within this subculture this is just a way to understand what would be a more transformative politics the thing i was thinking about when you were just talking nadia is actually my i mean my dad is is a, is not a kind of normie socialist he's a lifelong anarchist you know, self-described, but he's like he's eighty this year. So he comes from the generation that was already, or well, the cohort at least, that was already, you know, already kind of working and having kids and stuff by the time the sort of counterculture of the late sixties happened. Uh, and he had been schooled in this uh, political tradition where, even if you're an anarchist, actually, you try not to make yourself look kind of, you know, really strikingly different from other people so I remember in the 70s like he he, he had a suit and he was a social worker my dad and when he worked and he, he had a suit and he only ever wore a suit for two purposes and one was to um go with his clients to court and, the, and one was to go on demos and he always used to quote me uh some guy some figure I don't know an American black radical figure who gave a talk that really influenced him that said uh, the effective revolutionary is comparatively inconspicuous so there's a whole kind of, it's interesting to reflect, there's a whole tradition, like within even very, very sort of radical sort of strands of politics of thinking, well, there's sort of a problem if you take a subcultural strategy, if you adopt a subcultural strategy of just, you know, of explicitly differentiating yourself from everybody else in order to assert your radicalism rather than trying to sort of engage with that broader culture uh, on the other hand you know i mean my, i'm not i'm not saying I'm, I'm not sort of defending that position i've you know I, i've never worn a suit on a demo that, that itself would now be really weird in fact <laughs> but i think i think um and it does speak again to the question of all that we're all i think we're sort of persistently concerned with on this podcast isn't it which is what you know what is our relationship to that kind of moment when some the, to the fact that in some ways we're still in this historical moment that begins in the second half of the 60s when a whole a whole kind of a whole kind of cultural and politi political ecology changes, can I um I want to go I want to go back to your dad's um normy 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 political instincts normy anarchism normy anarchism actually I, yeah because I've lived through I've lived through a normy term in turn in anarchism myself uh, which was you know this whole this whole thing from punk through to uh, punk which is all about pissing off your parents. And, and through to the sort of anarcho-punk. Um, and so, you know, when I was very young, I, I was sort of like quite influenced by anarcho-punk. Uh, and then there's this turn around, you know, the late 80s, early 90s uh, from like, you know, your, your where you dress being based around, you know, transgressing norms and, and like, you know, trying to piss off your, the people who look like your parents to then getting involved in like political struggles. And you think, hang on a minute, actually, I need to, uh, if I'm going to, Bring about any sort of change. I, I need to get people who look a little bit like my parents on on board with this project. Do you know what I mean? And so, in the, you know, there was a big turn 
towards sort of class struggle anarchism. And that was definitely a turn towards looking normal, basically, a, a, a turn away from the countercultural. But but is is isn't there isn't there a difference between sort of opting out of a so-called weird style as a tactic, and between that being actual like de- developed or organically developed culture? I don't know if it's tactics, though, because like. It just brings out something which is this attention in transfor- you know, radically transformative politics between you know these, the, the experimental moment where you want to break with the norms of society and then the moments where you want to massify and uh, find you know what's, what, what's common beyond you know the, the sort of subculture that, that you've created. And I, I mean the way, the way through that or the way yeah, the way through that tension is probably, what what you were saying earlier, Nadia, which is, you know, human life is complex, and like basically the normal is like an empty set. Do you know, no, yes, nobody exa- lives exactly. No one is normal. Everybody is weird. Do you know, most people are weird in one way or the other, and more than that, uh, you know, most people recognise that most people are weird. Like that doesn't mean that the normal doesn't exist. The normal is well, it's like like norms. It's a regulatory norm. You know, it's like it's a, a place, it's, a place of judgment, basically. Um, well, exactly. It's a place of judgment, and not somewhere where you, where people really exist. Exist, and that, that to me is is the really interesting point: is that what what is happening when people say that is not normal? Is that's a reflection onto themselves? Is saying I can't be like that, or I am like that, and I will not recognize that I am like that too, because there is something in that space that's about a threat to the normal, and I'm really interested in that. Interested in that politically. So when people cast other people aside in the realm of left wing politics and say that's normal, that's not normal. What's actually going on there, and what does that say for the the ability for us as individuals, but also as groups on the left, to transform? The version of psychedelic music that we had, say, in the first well, we'll have had in the first two episodes. It's a very specific idea of psychedelia, and it's one that you know people like myself were sort of championed. But it does rather leave out like what a lot of people would immediately think of when they think of the psychedelic, which is this kind of really weird, kind of avant-garde sounds, like sort of deliberately strange and disturbing music. If you're thinking about psychedelic culture and its legacy, a whole component of it, you know, is this tradition going back going back again to the late 60s really of borrowing to music to some extent borrowing from the kind of mid-century european avant-garde uh, promoting a kind of avant-garde experiment uh, sort of experimental aesthetic of dissociation etc i mean probably the the most uh, celebrated the most ideal typical example is probably uh, the work of captain beefheart unlike say the grateful dead we've played before like it's net it was never going to have a sort of mass following because it is so weird it's just so weird and it is a sort of in it but it's value but it its value is this sort of you know this sort of you know quite uncompromising sort of celebration of its own like extraordinary sort of complexity and imminent weirdness I mean, I think it's worth saying, like, what is the weird left? What is the the idea of the weird left, or what is it kind of reacting to? And one one of the things we we've been interested in is um, just a couple of articles, sort of blog posts, interviews from the states where people have uh, tried to differentiate what you might call a weird left, a transgressive left, from you know what they're calling normie socialism. 
which is this idea that, well, in order for it to be popular, you know, in order for it to be politically successful, then socialism necessarily has to appeal to absolutely, you know, just to a certain kind of resonance with mainstream culture, with a kind of imagined with an imagined and assumed cultural conservatism of the broader working class or the broad, broader class coalitions, which it has to have in its base. Yeah, so this, there was an article, or actually an interview with a uh, uh, US activist called Kate Doyle Griffiths, um, and, and it, was, it was titled Normie Socialism or Communist Transition. Transgression. Um, she, she's quite good on this idea that um, the normal is actually tied to basically a sort of aspirational bourgeois ideal of what 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 life should be like what a person should be like right or perhaps what an adult should be be like we've got an idea of adulthood and yet we can't access it and that ideal of adulthood is tied to the, you know the attributes of, of private property uh, to some degree so we've got this 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 moment where being a normal adult is 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 a uh, you know this aspirational bourgeois ideal which nobody actually lives in but even the aspiration doesn't make much sense anymore because it's just it's just not available. It's not it's not available. So that's one reason why we might want to talk about why this tension between you know between the weird and the normal is coming out. But it is also about the what the level of change that we're envisaging. You know, are, are we talking about a very mild social democracy in which everybody has access to the normal, <laughs> or are we talking about you know perhaps a very mild social democracy? setting the basis for a much larger more wide-scale transformation i'd say that the the times the times call for the latter basically just because of the scale of change that we which climate change for one thing puts on the table i think well that's right and i also th i think you know it's not rocket science the weird is always about a kind of break with normality it's about a sense that there is something beyond normality something not quite fitting about normality and also something potentially novel happening at a given moment that, you know, that the world is not necessarily as it presented itself before the weird thing occurred. So weirdness and weirdness, I think, carries this resonance in our culture, you know, with the idea of the weirdo, the idea of the freak, the idea that, you know, that it's always bound up with the idea of the strangeness of the novel, the new. And that comes back to the sense that, well, you know, one thing the weird left wants to assert if he wants to assert anything is is indeed as Keir keeps saying the possibility of things being very different from how they are now I mean one of the ideas that I, I always come back to you when trying to think through this question is the idea of the experimental the idea that you know you can make it I think you can make it a pretty reasonable you know reformist sort of political demand to say well what we want we want government we want institutions to actually facilitate and encourage uh, various kinds of experimentation, whether it's experimentations in the kind of household you can live in, experimentations in education, experimentation in the organisation of sort of healthcare delivery, you know, whatever it is. And I think that is, on the one hand, I think that is completely consistent with the most the most sort of radical wing of social democracy, say in the mid twentieth century, which which was, you know, that's what it meant to be progressive in a way. And it is very different to, for example, sort of third-way neoliberalism, which, which doesn't want experiment, which wants to shut down experimentation in all of those sites, and it wants to shut it down, indeed, by imposing that bourgeois aspirational model on the idea of what kind of a household you you can want to belong to. It wants to shut it down in education by using league tables and standardised testing to shut down experimentation within the schools to say that the only thing education is for 
is for producing so a very narrowly defined kind of worker wants to shut it down indeed he wants even wants to shut it wants to shut it down in the health in in healthcare by making sure by really orienting subtly reorienting the delivery of healthcare back you know to the accumulation of capital by sort of pharmaceutical companies and private deliverers so if you think about just trying to sell this as an idea as a principle to people to quote unquote ordinary people in the electorate i think it's interesting to think you think you know, imagine you're on the doorstep trying to explain this to someone and on the one hand i think on the one hand it's something i can imagine it being very easy to sell as long as there's a certain kind of optimism in the mood shared by the, you and the person you're talking to a certain kind of belief in the possibility that um that yeah you know if we try you know trying new things is good you know it's what we want that's what everybody you know we want to allow teachers to, you know to be creative in the classroom and then you imagine a scene in which people are feeling very defeated feeling very miserable people have just had you know decades of you know education you know being narrowed or being underfunded and people saying no i don't care about that and falling back on this blairite slogan or what matters is what works like i don't care i just want you know basic services delivered like now i think that's important i mean to me that's important because it links to some of our other themes like in earlier episodes about things like collective joy the fact that what we want in part is a politics which is perfectly feasible but it's feasible as long as people feel that the world is a world rich with possibilities and that you know everyday life to some extent is a field of rich possibilities and then but the more that people feel just narrowed down and defeated by their experiences the more they're going to retreat from any idea of experimentation the more they're going to retreat and the more it's going to become the case that you know as the normie socialist will will tell us uh, you, you just you can't go on the doorstep telling people you want like democratic schools or just think you're mad i i actually it's very hard for me not to think about this with my kind of strategic uh, political organizer hat on and think that that the problem here is one in terms of like being able to sell things that let's say you know to keep on theme are weird to the electorate on the doorstep is a question of the the, the, the difficulty in doing that is is a lack of um ambition um on the part of the people who are doing that sort of work and because they're not making big enough asks i think if you say to someone if you say to people as part of your political strategy we are going to win something big and change something big and we want you to do something big with us they're more likely to believe you than if you like keep on scaling back in that kind of capitalist realism kind of incremental like smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller demands um i think there's a there's a point at which you break through and you you stay with a project and you say actually what we want is this and we're not backing down from it and there's something in the sincerity of making that demand of what you actually believe the future should look like that is really powerful and i and, and as you were speaking uh, jeremy it got me thinking about you know our weird or you know the acid acid weird in a sense which seems to have a quality of like effervescence um or or not it's 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 a, in contrast in a sense to meet to the heaviness of like normie left leftism or leftiness or whatever to me there's something about the weird in the way that we see as a positive um political trajectory or possibility that will kind of almost rises up and has a potential to break through capitalist realism or like political realism in a sense and it, and you can't quite pin it down and you can't quite fit it on that grid like you say but because it speaks to part of what is the human spirit and the weirdness and the kind of 
the possibilities of you know the human mind once multiplied into like a collective experience so so for me that that's what's excited about exciting about talking about the weird in in that sense it hasn't got this kind of heaviness and this these these rules and this kind of lack of ambition about about what is possible it's 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 a much much lighter than that psychic tv and, and throbbing gristle a kind of linked a pair of bands uh, led by genesis p orridge and they came out they came out of the performance art scene they got into weird stuff you know they were kind of into some of them were into sadomasochism they were into ritual magic they were sort of into the occult and again they were part of that strands of counterculture which because it wanted to pursue weirdness you know high weirdness as eric davis would put it to a certain extreme that they got into kind of occult practice and kind of magic and their music is again you know it's not an easy listen at all but the point it's designed to try to um you know in some sense it isn't it is supposed to be sort of trance inducing actually but but by pushing the listener to a certain extreme limit with throbbing gristle like i think that's a really good example because they sort of invent industrial music and they probably got the best claim to have invented industrial music which leads to bands such as like nine inch nails and marilyn manson you know and, and marilyn manson in my head is a real example of you know where the weird becomes reduced to a fight to a to a to a fixed set of stylistic conventions do you know what i mean which basically makes him pretty boring as far as i'm concerned but you know he performs the weird for in the 1990s, he performs the the weird for you know, uh, Middle America. This book by um, Ken Goffman and Dan Joy is called Counterculture Through the Ages, and they use this phrase the freak left, and the freak left they use to refer to is these specific left groups in the in the late 60s who are they are the epitome of acid communism. I mean, they're, they're literate they're not acid communism in the broad sense that Mark uses the term. They're they're literally Maoists who are really into taking acid like even while they're doing they're like you know sort of weird kind of you know terrorist exercises kind of blowing up banks or whatever and then matt full are kind of riffing on that kind of had this phrase you use sometimes um about the weird left which imagining you know what kind of left we would be part of that in some way would resonate with some of that legacy but would also resonate with the broad much broader notion of acid communism the mark put forward to designate the whole kind of sort of spirit and politics of the counterculture and the whole countercultural kind of zeitgeist uh, even in working class culture in the sort of you know great moment of 60s and 70s having uh, been interested in that we came across this stuff that kids referred to these articles about uh the the weird you know the weird left and i think somebody uses the phrase in one of those articles or maybe we just used it keep socialism weird um, which is a de- deliberate evocation of this slogan that was popularized i think it was first popularized in austin texas then it was taken up by portland people in portland keep austin weird keep portland weird and the idea is you have a town which has developed a reputation for a certain kind of bohemian sort of countercultural quality and it's in the process of being gentrified and being sort of somehow normalized and you don't want that to happen you want to somehow protect or even extend its weirdness and that so that leads us into thinking well you know what how do we relate to that notion of weirdness and the weird and keeping things weird and uh, and why would we want to and do we really care well i mean before getting into a genealogy of the weird as a concept i'd say when we i think we feel that this debate around what they're calling normie socialists versus a, 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 an imagined weird socialism or, or weird left it really resonates with some key debates which 
a lot of us have been interested in, in on the British left and in British politics over the past you know, 10 years. So, for example, I mean, when Mark Fisher and I were writing stuff together a few years ago, like one of the main things we were exercised by at the time was the popularity of the so-called Blue Labour project. And the Blue Labour idea is this idea that what Labour needed to do to win popular support was to completely reject a Blairite third-way neoliberalism, but to reject every aspect of it, including its embrace of cosmopolitan culture, you know, uh, you know, immigration, globalisation, social liberalism, gay rights, to, to reject all of that and to embrace social conservatism and say to people, yeah, you're right to be socially conservative, but what's causing all the social disruption you don't like is, is neoliberal capitalism. And that's why you should join us in opposing neoliberal capitalism, because that's what will defend your heart, you know, your, your beloved values of faith, flag and family. And so Mark and I had a specific critique of that. that said no, he said it was completely wrong. Blue Labour was just totally misreading a certain element of a sort of you know broader public mood, which rejected neoliberalism and was nostalgic for something before it. Because Blue Labour thought that what people were nostalgic for was some imagined universe in which everybody you know of the nineteen fifties. And we said no, that's not what people are nostalgic for. What people are nostalgic for is the sense of hope and optimism of the sixties. That's what, yeah, that's what more people are nostalgic for. Then it's nostalgic for the very idea that they had a kind of open and free future ahead of them, and that's what the left had to sort of give them back. And I think to some extent, I mean, Blue Labour went nowhere as a political project. It was never even really popular in the Labour Party. It didn't get, you know, it didn't really develop any kind of a popular base. And Corbynism is the thing that kind of you know, erupted in some ways it, it, at the moment when it was clear that Blue Labour had totally failed. So, and I think that's part, and that's partly why we have felt since the beginning of Corbynism, you know, people like us making this show, who, who in some ways come from a much more radical kind of intellectual and political, uh, you know, uh, heritage, feel that there is something in Corbynism, which really, in, in that it, Corbynism does, you know, does partly involve that very rejection of Blue Labour that resonates with this whole alternative current which indeed says, no, the working class are not inherently conservative. They're not inherently necessarily conformist. They're not, you know, they, they, they're in the, uh, and that it is possible to have a kind of creative, optimistic, experimental politics, which can also be popular. Now, in terms of really current immediate debates, one of the things we've been talking about um, in leading up to this discussion is Joe Kennedy's book, Authentocrats, which is a critique of both Blue Labour and other sort of recent discourses uh, in mostly in British political culture but you could see the same thing happening in the states very much so uh, where people claim to be speaking for an imagined authentic working class experience by asserting the kind of immutable value of certain kinds of social conservatism by saying look ultimately you'll never you'll never kind of connect with the real working class unless you embrace you know subtle racism nationalism social conservatism family values uh, and kennedy does a really forensic unpicking of this to saying well it's just not true it's demonstrably not true and the people who claim to speak for that position are, are just are largely self-serving but i think it does there is still even within kind of corbynism within the mainstream of the labor party there is a kind of anxiety around the question of well you know is it you know are do we have to pretend that joe Jeremy Corbyn, you know, who's a vegetarian, who has an allotment, who's been on the fringe, left fringe of British politics since the 70s, who, who first got nominated as a Labour MP by a bunch of left communists. You know, do we have to pretend that actually he's, he's just a, he's a, he's a 
he's a non-threatening character to the sort of the sort of constituency that gets imagined into existence by you know by new labor that Keir has already talked about or can we go out and say look in fact you know it is the case that 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 dream world that the new labor created for you where everybody gets to be you know everybody gets a semi-detached house a mortgage and you know 2.2 kids and a car you know is just a dream world it's not it's never going to be available to everyone and we shouldn't even want it anyway and you know in fact we can offer we we have a much more pluralistic vision of what the future could be for and a much more inclusive vision of what the future could be for everyone in britain precisely by embracing the fact that weirdness is fine and everyone is weird like corbyn's a good example of <laughs> weirdness is normal right because in some ways he's a really a, a, a archetypal british character you know like allotment growing <laughs> collects um what does he collect um is it pictures of of um of manhole covers or something like that yeah, that is deeply like that. weird and absolutely <laughs> british and normal absolutely. but jeremy yeah. jeremy hardy said you know this thing about look he's so british if you cut him he'd bleed tea do you know what i mean like, he's very very he's a british archetype he is an archetype of the of the of the of of somebody who is authentic because he's weird do you know what I mean? Some of his weirdness is left weirdness. Some of his weirdness is just that classic British weirdness. And and what you'd oppose to that, right, is so so the 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 paradigmatic example that Joe Kennedy uses in his um, Authenticrats book is Owen Smith, who was uh, who was in a leadership uh, election uh, against Jeremy Corbyn in 2016. He gets interviewed in a cafe in Pontypridd. Um, and he gets served a cappuccino and he pretends to not know what it is. And so this is an Italian, this is an Italian <laughs> cafe in Pontypri. There's a big, tra- I come from South Wales, there's a big tradition uh, that goes back right to the 1930s of Italian families running cafes and serving uh, Italian coffees, cappuccinos, way before we have any of this Seattle rubbish. <laughs> he knows what, what cappuccino is. And he says, oh, this is the first time I've ever been served a frothy coffee, he says it's called. It's the first time I've ever been called a frothy coffee. They don't normally serve it to me in this fancy cup with these small biscuits. I normally get a mug. And it's like this this totally artificial, this is not what Britain is. That's not what South Wales is. It's just this, this you know, this weird... It's like a fantasy version of normal, basically. You know, so I think that Owen Smith versus Corbyn is an interesting thing about actually people are weird and when you pretend not to be weird, you get yourself tied up in these this ridiculous performance, you know what I mean? Okay, so the fall, uh, 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 an ever-changing lineup led by Marquis e. Smith come out of Manchester, a real like northern working-class sensibility, but added to that, you know, a real fascination with the weird. They're an example of the weird in the normal, or perhaps the normalization of the weird, right? So, you know, there were songs about about football, and that led to this really odd moment uh, in which Marky e. Smith, the lead singer of The Four, gets to read out the football scores on the BBC in the early 90s. Uh, it's because the, the BBC were using, like, the, the, this uh, theme from Sparta FC as their theme tune, so they got him to read it out. Marky e. Smith is a very ambivalent figure politically. Like, a, you know, he's supposed to have been on the far left at one stage and supposed to have kind of become disillusioned with that. And he took some quite reactionary positions occasionally in sort of interviews and things. And there is this sense in which, you know, 
there is this sense sometimes in which like the last thing Marky Smith wants is like for everyone to be listening to the fall and for the fall actually to influence other bands and like he hated he was really resentful about any other band that had obviously been influenced by the fall and there is this sense in that in in wanting to defend his own weirdness like he there was this really self-limiting you know nature to the project that it just it could only go so far in sort of changing the culture and changing the music and that is of course that is the danger of the weird the danger of the weird is you end up in an aesthetic and political cul-de-sac where in order to defend your weirdness you refrain from the possibility of resonating with the the weirdness that is already imminent in in every in, in the everyday are we steering onto amenable territory for the for the right to fight us you know, they, they, the right when 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 neoliberalism first emerged in you know the late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, it wasn't putting forward its own proposal. It was saying we're going to end this chaos, you know, we're going to end this disruption. And today, you know, the the, the, the right want to draw draws into a, a war about culture because they don't want to have a war about economics. You know, that's my worry about this. Yeah, well, I think well, you're right to raise that, but I would also point out that the alt I mean we all know that the alt-right has been an important part of the ecology of the rise of you know both sort of Brexitism and the um and Trump and the alt I mean what is the alt-right but it's the weird right and the reason why the alt-right has seemed to be so scary and so potent in, in some quarters is because it has allowed itself to embrace a certain weirdness and I think a big part of our argument from day one on this podcast is, well, we won't, f the reared white is part of what we have to fight. Yeah. And we won't fight the reared white without, without finding and embracing our own weirdness, you know, a better weirdness. Yeah. And it doesn't, because yeah. that, that weirdness is what gives them a certain libidinal energy, you know, which makes them sort of attractive to, to people and, and makes them seem kind of, you know, and it makes the, it, you know, it, I mean, there's this really interesting kind of, you know, discourse going around a year or two ago about how it was, it was the meme magic of the alt-right that made Trump possible, that kind of willed him into existence. And I think uh, some of that some of that is kind of problematic, but also some of it is clearly just true. Some of it clearly is sort of true. And I think uh, we have to face that. I'm really amenable to the idea that, like, the problem with the alt-right is that they're not weird enough. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. that's, it's that thing of, like, just transgressing transgressing what you know liberal sensibilities you know triggering the libs is the the whole uh point of that whole culture but like how do they do that they do that by falling back on the most tired you know tropes of of um naturalization such as, well race science for instance <laughs> do you know all of this you know the idea that there are races and all this sort of stuff or, or traditional gender roles you know this is not weird enough. <laughs> but I think but I think I think a lot of the um the energy that you were speaking about, Jeremy, that, that the alt right get is also is is because of that lightness. So what they've got in terms of a similar definition to to the one I just spoke about previously, about the effervescent possibility or like effervescent character of the weird is that by by the kind of almost just winging it with some of the techniques not in terms of like the grounding of like the, the right-wing politics behind it but I think you know there was a lot of winging it and the, the trial of all of these we memes and like different sloganeering and stuff and I think it, it stuck for the alt-right because because they were trying something new and it was much lighter and there was there was a 
um, and there is a song, a strong sense of like mobilization and action rather than like sitting and planning and, you know, boardrooms in the way that that politics manifests itself. And I think that's attractive. And I would argue that it's the way that that politics performs itself that makes it just as attractive as the content of it. And I'm a very much a form over content with these things. I'm really interested in how the, the, the performativity of a, of a set of um, and politics and it's very very different to you know previous how previous right-wing politics looked in terms of its communication uh, i think it's exactly right i think that i think that formulation of lightness is really useful because it really makes me think about well where if we survey the contemporary left and the kind of labor left where do we find that lightness and, and where don't we uh, and where we find it is in the world transformed and in the sort of, you know, the kind of local events that have been inspired by the world transformed that have been happening over the past year. I mean, that is really one of, you know, you, you go to one of these events and you have this sense of a kind of energy, but also a, there's a sense of easiness. There's a sense that, you know, you could sort of do or say or, or produce kind of all kinds of things in this space that just wouldn't be possible elsewhere without anybody getting too uptight about it. And I think, and that is, I mean, that's where kind of the the acid corbinism idea came from, like out of that matrix. And it's so different from the complete, abs- there's been a complete failure. Maybe it's just impossible. Maybe it's an inability to, to make that lightness felt like within the structures of the Labour Party. I mean, it's not the experience people get going to branch meetings. No, because of the light, because the lightness is also related to control. And that also takes us back to this concept of the, the weird. Like you, there's a lack of control over like the direction of things. And, and you're right, I think, about, you know, the world transformed experientially in the sense of that you don't feel like you have to fall in line. You don't feel like you will be punished, you know, if you're at a certain event and you have a discussion around something or if something doesn't actually work in exactly the, the, the right way that the, the organizers predicted it to or even like the output in terms of the content. And I think, you know, that, that that's a really interesting point because if you use that frame to look at exactly that difference between what's it like to go to a branch meeting and that kind of heaviness and the kind of and to me that's 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 within is now can only be read within the kind of heaviness and slowing down and kind of difficulty of life as experienced underneath capitalist realism whereas you know part of the whole acid thing and you know the terminology around taking drugs about like getting high you know and letting go and relaxing has to be also part of the culture of, of the culture sorry of how how we do politics and that doesn't mean that there aren't really strong left-wing principles which undermine this sort of stuff but it's re- recognizing that that heaviness is is that is that nor that that norm and normality that grid has a heaviness with it which is which is lacking in any potential of transforming you know the kind of world we want to have Okay, Laraji is is really he is an absolute embodiment of what I call Afro psychedelia. You know, he's coming out of the, the kind of you know, musical traditions of the American of Afro American culture, but he's absolutely engaged with psychedelic music, psychedelic culture, and and he is producing music which is supposed to put you in a sort of trance state. You know, it's music to trip to, music to meditate to. You know, in a way, it's music which is trying to make that experience like not at all weird, which is trying to make it, it's trying to sort of domesticate it. Uh, but it's also music which is trying to explore, you know, the kind of imminent, you know, the potential of moments of absolute illumination and bliss in just sort of everyday life, you know, sort of meditating in your living room. 
and in that it, it does have this kind of imminent utopianism about it uh, which does speak to the idea of the weird as not just uh, the rebarbative, like the horrible, you know, the extreme, the dark, but the weird as also the beautiful, the, even the sublime. I'm trying to think about like, what do we want? What do we actually want to happen? I mean, there's a real danger at the moment, I think, that we're heading to a situation where the kind of energy that's come from the world transform, that's come from the grassroots, that's come from the membership, that's come through things like Grind for Corbyn, is going to increasingly find itself in an antagonistic rather than a sort of complementary relationship with the sort of normie Corbynism of Unite. And I think we really have to be... Uh, you know, try and avoid that. Because if that's what happens, if we end up back in a situation... I mean, really a bit like the late 80s, where it's basically like anarchists, you know, and, and sort of youth against the Labour leadership, you know, while the Tories just continue on you know, indefinitely, then we're really going to be in trouble. And I think there is, you know, there is a good precedent for this. And sorry to keep going back to the 60s and 70s, but like Tony Benn, you know, Tony Benn was like in some ways the ultimate example. I mean, a bit like we said about Corbyn, of the kind of normal, you know, the, Eng- the normal English guy, you know, tweed jacket, aristocrat, pipe in his mouth. And he himself, like his own cultural tastes, were always quite conservative, quite normal. But his attitude to like the counterculture, his attitude when he went to, say, the Dialectics of Liberation Conference in the late 60s was, look, we have to recognise these people are basically on our side. Now, these, even, if we, even if we don't all really want to participate in it, even if the average MP or the, or the average Labour Party branch officer you know, wouldn't feel that comfortable you know, going to a rave or whatever then it's important to recognise that broadly speaking they're all part of the same sort of family and on the same side and that was a fairly normal attitude amongst say you know amongst certain you know sections of the leadership of the Labour Party and the Labour movement until the 70s and then from the 70s onwards the Labour Party just embraced you know took the view that really it was just death for the Labour Party ever to be seen publicly to be anything but totally hostile to say rave culture and I think we're we're at we're still at a juncture now where it's not clear. It's not totally clear whether Corbynism is ultimately just going to go that way. Is going to go the way of saying, well, in order to keep on side the socially conservative over fifty five leave voting working class voters, we're going to have to really be seen to publicly reject the kind of bohemian culture of our you know millennial metropolitan activists. Or is it going to say, look, we have to develop a kind of institutional ecology which can allow all of those things to resonate with each other in positive ways? And it's not clear yet which way it's going to go, but it is a really live political question, I think. I don't, just my little intervention on that, I don't believe, and maybe this because I have a kind of positive outlook of like the potential of human uh, behaviour and existence and thinking, I don't believe that that the 55-year-old small-town leave voter doesn't like a really good party. And I think if you no, took yeah, the, that's all, a yeah, you're really right. good party... Yeah, you're right. It, that, it, that's a lack of imagination. I think there's so many people around the country who's like ha- ha- housing their estates, their high streets have been like decimated. And if we were to take your sound system, Jeremy, which is obviously the best sound system in Europe, to like on on a tour around the country and through like free street parties, I think like you know, <laughs> then then we'd see quite a different. Uh, then we wouldn't have that fear, or people in Labour wouldn't have that fear. In my if view, if we could uh, if we could combine these 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 raves with like exhibitions of manhole covers, I think we'll have all bases. Covered. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com.
If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.